Okay. Worst part about running for president so far. And you have to be honest with me. I need... I mean, because this... I don't want to tell you. Come on. It's not an appropriate thing for me to say. I know this experience sucks in a lot of ways. I love the experience, but I'll tell you it later off the record. Come on. It's not appropriate. Why? I'm Tim Alberta. I'm the chief political correspondent for Politico magazine. How inappropriate could it be? When I tell you the reason, you'll know why it's inappropriate. Okay. And that is Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York. And she doesn't want to tell me what she hates about running for president. All right, listen, I'm going to... We're not doing this. A final, final opportunity. I eventually got an answer out of her, but that answer was a sanitized version of what her real answer was. Senator Gillibrand, what's the one thing that's driven you nuts so far about this campaign? I want you to give me an honest answer because America deserves honesty at this period of our history. Yeah, they do. Yeah. So the one thing that's annoying to me is how many times reporters ask you about our male colleagues. Who cares? I'm running for president. I want to tell you what my vision is, why I'm running, and why I'm going to win. What male colleagues? What, what? All of them. You feel like that All of them. because of the stances you've taken in the Senate that you are a magnet for questions about men? No, I think reporters like yourself who are super smart and super careful will always ask me what I think about the male colleagues. Are you asking the male colleagues what they think about us? Probably not. Hmm. There you go. I got you the G-rated version. So here's the backstory. Kirsten Gillibrand, since coming to the Senate, uh, and of course she succeeded Hillary Clinton when Clinton became Barack Obama's Secretary of State back in 2009. Kirsten Gillibrand has really carved out this role for herself in the U.S. Senate as the leading voice on women's issues, specifically issues of pay equality in the workplace, gender discrimination, paid family leave, and most recently, of course, she was sort of at the forefront of the Me Too movement on Capitol Hill, and she took a big gamble in calling for the resignation of her colleague and fellow senator from Minnesota, Al Franken, who did ultimately resign, sparking a bit of a firestorm on the progressive left because there were a lot of liberals who believed that Al Franken had himself been victimized and that some voices on the left went too far in holding him up as an example and and lumping him in with the Matt Lowers and the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. I'm trying to think, did I ask a question earlier about the male yeah. When we got in the car? At point, you we, didn't. We were cool up until then. And I was about to say, this is what... Was it in I the car? Like yes. What, about Biden? Yes. I'm trying to remember. Before that G-rated version that she gave me, I asked Senator Gillibrand what she thought about Joe Biden, the front runner in the race, who himself had faced a recent flurry of questions surrounding his relationships with women and specifically his brand of touchy-feely politics. How did you personally react to to the entire Biden situation? Uh, I just think it's something he's going to have to answer for, and he'll have to do that. And the thing is, Gillibrand is used to getting these questions by now. I'm not the only one asking her about Joe Biden or about Al Franken or about women's rights issues as they pertain to the presidential campaign. In fact, just about every stop she makes, that's the first and last question that she gets asked by prying reporters. Senator, Senator, yes, um, earlier this week, Vice President's wife, uh, Jill Biden, said that when it comes to the Anita Hill controversy, she said it's basically a closed case. And I'm wondering, do you feel that way, or does the former Vice President need to 
maybe have a, a deeper apology? You know, that's up to Vice President Biden. Um, during his presidential campaign, I'm sure he'll have to talk to voters. There are two uh, men at the significantly ahead um, in the polls. What do you say to voters who may like you, may think you're a really good candidate, but don't have concerns when they see those numbers that you could actually win? I think it's really early. Uh, it's obviously a marathon and not a sprint. And I'm wondering if you think women are being treated differently at all on this in this campaign. Well, I think there's certainly um, press reports. Is Joe Biden's 20-point lead about his name recognition right now? Yes. Or it, it, it's not. It's, and how do you overcome that? Through building up my own name recognition, which means just coming to New Hampshire over and over. Guys, where are you at? What, what, I don't know, but I'm not there yet. I do know that. Yeah. <laughs> what, do you, what do you make of? Uh, Thank you all so Great. much. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes, we can. Now, in fairness, I don't think that Gillibrand's just worked up about questions of gender bias. I think she's genuinely a little bit agitated that her presidential campaign has really failed to achieve any lift thus far. Since entering the race, she has failed to break 2% in any national poll, and that has her lagging behind even the likes of Andrew Yang and Julian Castro and Tulsi Gabbard names that are not nearly as prominent and high profile as that of Senator Gillibrand. So that was a fun little gaggle that we did back there, basically like, why doesn't anybody in New Hampshire like you? Like, why aren't you getting any votes? Why haven't you qualified for the debates yet? Yeah, it was a little negative. And she's really beginning to feel a sense of urgency, because in order to qualify for the Democratic debate stage in late June, she's got to collect 65,000 unique individual donations to ensure her a place on that stage. And right now she doesn't have them. And so she's going around New Hampshire asking voters for a dollar, saying, hey, if you like what you hear. If you like what you've heard tonight, I want to earn my place on the debate stage. I cannot do it unless you send a dollar. Literally. I just need a buck because that's how desperate she is right now to get onto that debate stage. And so I think it's the combination of all of these questions about gender issues and about Joe Biden and about Al Franken, compounded by the fact that her campaign is really flailing at the moment. So that's the backstory. And then we decided to have some lunch. So we sat down in this lovely little back corner booth at Republic on Elm Street in Manchester, and I began peppering her with questions about everything from the kind of white condiments she prefers. Well, no, I'm not. Really? What about Miracle Whip? To what it's like to be Kirsten Gillibrand at this very strange juncture in this very strange presidential race. There's been no shortage of ink spilled on the evolution of, of Kirsten Gillibrand over the years. And it's interesting to me because it seems like it's a catch-22. A lot of voters are frustrated with politicians who are doctrinaire and who are stubborn and rigid and unwilling to show any signs of of rethinking certain issues, but when a politician makes a dramatic evolution on an issue or on any set of issues, then they're a flip-flopper or they're insincere or they're opportunistic. So it seems to me that it's sort of a lose-lose, and you have been kind of at that nexus where some people would say, boy, she has really been open-minded and she's been willing to evaluate these things and think about them differently, and other people would look at her and say, oh, she's totally hollow. She has no core convictions. Yeah, nobody would that? nobody would say that if they actually met me. Uh, they're just making it up. But for me, I think a, a public servant or a leader who never changes their mind, who never learns, who never grows, actually is not a good leader, is not a strong leader. Because you have to recognize our own failures and you have to have humility. 
Um, if you don't know that we all make mistakes and we all have challenges in our lives and see that in yourself, you're never going to be able to empathize with someone else's struggle. As a public servant, our job is to help everyone and to really take these challenges on as if they were our own. So typically, as, as folks grow older, just in the abstract, as folks grow older, they tend to, in many cases, become more conservative. And as you've grown older, you've tended to become more progressive. Are, are there sort of corollary things in your life where you have also felt yourself changing over the years where you're very different now than you were 10 or 15 years ago when you were in upstate New York? So in other words, not just policy positions changing, but your views on culture, your views on societal issues writ large. No, I haven't really changed my views on society writ large. I can give you an example though when I really did change quite dramatically. It's when I had kids. Yeah. So before I had kids, I was a woman who worked all the time, 24-7, uh, if there was loud children in a restaurant, I would go to a different restaurant. I just was very focused on being single in my own life. And when I had children, my views changed so dramatically. Um, I enjoy a baby on an airplane, and I don't mind if they get fussy. Like, I'm just so happy to see that baby. So it's just different. As a mother, I'm, I wasn't a young girl who did a lot of babysitting. I was, you know, much more inclined to be doing sports after school. and. If, you know, when I started working as a young person, it was not babysitting. It was just not my thing. When you were very career-oriented earlier in your life, did you think you'd ever want to have kids? Oh, I knew I'd want to have kids. You did, okay. And I definitely intended to get married and have kids. I didn't know when, but I knew it would be part of my future. I always wanted to be a mother. But it really changed for me when I became a mother. It was just my worldview changed so dramatically. And I noticed something interesting. Now, you took your husband's name, correct? Yes. Now, that's something that is somewhat unusual among women politicians, especially among prominent women yep. politicians. Yep. Um, and I think for a lot of people who uh, associate you with this very outspoken, aggressive form of feminism, not to say that, that with any negative connotation, but that has been your brand certainly in Congress uh, and in the Senate over the last few years. They might be surprised that you kept your husband's name. Is that something that ever comes up or, or, or something that you give any thought to politically? It has not come up before, but I decided to take my husband's name because uh, I, I think it's part of my faith, but also part of the way I wanted to celebrate my husband. I thought it was a very kind thing to do and something that I thought he would appreciate and I did not have a dedication to my father's last name. Um, I tend What to was your maiden name? Rutnick. Rutnick, and, okay. But my sort of, a lot of what I focus on in my own story is my mother's side anyway. You know, my mother's the one who inspired me and my grandmother inspired me. So I very much aligned on my maternal side. So I just didn't have that level of commitment to my father's last name in the way that many people do. And I wanted to celebrate my husband. So I decided I would take his last name. You know what's really interesting? The contrast in covering Democratic campaigns and Republican campaigns 
and, and Pete Buttigieg has sort of broken through this in this sense. Yeah. You don't hear Democrats talk about religion very much at all on the campaign trail. I mean, maybe at the periphery, but but it's not thematic. It's not central to, to most campaigns in a way that, you know, this time four years ago when I'm here in New Hampshire, especially in Iowa, South Carolina with Republicans, I mean, the... Their rhetoric is so heavily flavored by religious undertones. Why do you think that is? Why, why is there that difference between the two parties, kind of generally speaking? I'm not sure, because uh, obviously there's many people of faith who are Democrats. My own journey towards public service was very faith-driven. Uh, I really believed that, you know, if you look at the book of Matthew and the parable of the talents, uh, that one Bible story really impacted me as a young person, and I thought, God's given me this amazing uh, education, uh, talents, and, and gifts, and I'm not using them to help others as much as I should. And so that's really what pushed me out of the law and into public service. And it's why I ultimately decided to run for Congress. How much do you worry, as a Democrat who has one red congressional district, one red counties, how much do you worry about just sort of a blanket perception of the Democratic Party lurching hard to the left? And that, not just in the abstract, uh, but specifically how it plays into what the president wants. You were at yeah. the State of the Union when he talked about this party becoming yeah. a socialist party. Yeah, I think it's a false narrative, and I think it's created intentionally to divide the country. And it's working. And it, I was going to say, I, I, can, I can tell you, I'd have a conversation with voters all across the country and saying, well, why is your party doing blah, blah, blah? Well, it's a perception, but it's not true. I mean, I literally ran on Medicare for All in 2005 in my two-to-one Republican district and won. But you, but you wouldn't deny that, that sort of from 30,000 feet, the Democratic Party circa 2019 is, is farther to the left than the Democratic Party circa 2009. So I wouldn't label it that way. I think it's the label that's the problem. I think the issues that people need addressed are really big problems, and they really need bold solutions. And I think the reason why we lost the last election is that a lot of voters didn't believe we would do the big enough thing. They didn't believe we would disrupt the system enough to fix health care or to fix our public schools or make college debt free or fix the economy so more people had a chance. Trump ran as the great disruptor. He said, the system's rigged, no bad trade deals, build a wall. And so he was being purposely divisive and racist to create separation and to create real division in the country. So it seems to me that that the labeling issue you're talking it's about the label that's wrong. It's but and, and and so when people hear oh far left right like that can that can trigger something negative. Correct. But but so think of it this way though what you're what it sounds like you're saying and correct me if, if you're wrong is that the party is you know forget about moving left but it's the party is more unapologetically embracing things. So 10 years ago, when, when Barack Obama was inaugurated, he was opposed to same-sex marriage. In his first term, he deported more illegal immigrants than Bush and Clinton combined. Uh, he, he didn't let Medicare for All have a seat at the table when they were negotiating the ACA. That was just 10 years ago. So people can look at that and say, well, the party has moved way far left. But what you're saying is that the party is no longer being timid on some yeah. of its kind and, of core progressive values. Correct. And recognizing that half measures aren't good enough. That in fact, the reason why Trump won is because they're looking for someone who will do the bold thing. And they thought if nothing else, he'll blow up the system. If nothing else, he'll be the one as an outsider to come in and just do the thing that needs to be done. If you remember, he ran on, I believe in universal health care that's better quality and cheaper. 
that is Medicare for all. That and is I'm not, not touching yeah. entitlement programs. Yeah. He, he, so he, he recognized that you need bold solutions. And I just think our parties hasn't recognized how important being bold and aggressive actually is to the American people that you desperately want to represent. Yeah. Well, well you get both. Oh, okay. And I Thank have the, the yes, I'm up the kale one. Um, oh, what, where, uh, you were just saying. So I have a different story. I mean, I have stood up to Pentagon twice, once over don't ask, don't tell, but then again over sexual assault in the military. I don't back down from fights that need to be fought. And I think that's what the American people are desperate for. Can we pause for a minute? Yes, absolutely. That'd be great. So we finished up lunch, and then we hopped into her waiting Chevy Suburban outside in a steady rainfall. She stopped to make sure and give a couple of dollars to a homeless person on the street, which was a nice touch. And in the car, we continued our conversation, touching on any number of themes, but really focusing on the issue at hand, which was her relationship with the media based on the role that gender and women's rights and equality have played in her political rise. You mentioned something earlier when you were asked about the men in the race and, and whether there was any uh, sort of uh, different treatment based on gender. And you said that, well, maybe some media bias. And you kind of had the smallest smirk on your face, but you didn't elaborate. And I would love to know, for example, do you think that it's uh, a little bit odd that we saw a man on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine effectively launching his prayer? You're nodding <laughs> and again smirking. <laughs> <laughs> it's unusual. It's a little bit unusual, right? Never seen it before. Van with his dog. Yeah. Well, I mean, talk to me about the coverage of women versus the coverage of men and how you think it affects campaigning in general, but especially a campaign for the presidency four years after Hillary Clinton lost as the Democratic nominee. Well, for me, um, you know, it's just something you have to overcome. And it's not unfamiliar. Um, you know, there's a lot of gender bias and misogyny in society at large across the board. And even when I was a young lawyer, um, and I ex shared the story in my book, um, I just remember working on a case for years and years and giving up every weekend and every holiday. And we're at a celebratory dinner about the case. And my boss turns around and says, oh, and let's thank Kirsten for all her great work. And don't you just love her new haircut? I'm like, oh my God, is he literally <laughs> talking about my hair when he's supposed to be talking about my work? Was it a new haircut? It was, <laughs> uh, and it did look fine. But uh, the point is, is that in any setting that really would have demeaned me and undermined me, because when you talk about a woman's looks in any setting, whether it's positive or negative, it undermines her and undermines what she's saying. So I think it's an issue, but you just have to overcome it and you do it through hard work. And that's what I will do. When you say that it's problematic, I'm, I'm fascinated by, I, and this might be a little bit esoteric, but, but is it problematic because that there is a sort of deliberate, overt effort, as you were referencing earlier, in the sense maybe of media bias playing a role in it? Or do you think it's problematic because it's subconscious? I mean, I've talked with female voters in the last few months who have said, maybe, we, maybe we don't need to put forward another female nominee because of what happened to Hillary. I think it's both. Uh, but you got to remember, Hillary won the election. She won the popular vote by three million votes. And you have to remember, um, she was definitely the most qualified candidate we'd ever had running for president. Um, and but for Russia, but for 
Comey, but for misogyny, but for a lot of things, she would have won. So uh, I believe that, of course, this country is ready to elect a woman president, uh, but they need to know what we're running on and what we're for and why we're running and why we think we're the best candidate. And that takes uh, a lot of hard work, meeting with voters directly and living room after living room, which I'm going to do. But it also takes, you know, great reporters like yourself covering things that we're doing and what, why we're running. Flattery will get you everywhere, by I the way. I know. Just to, that's just to, the whole just thing. Make sure of that. So here's the thing. What you just said leads me to the biggest question of all, which is, you're in a field now that's got 20 candidates and counting. Bill de Blasio is about to get into the race. Yeah. Uh, everybody and their mother wants to be president now, right? Yeah. Uh, no pun intended because of the a conversation yeah. about working moms. Yeah. But seriously, you've, you've got this historic primary field, and you are someone who has a pretty high profile nationally, pretty high profile in Washington, served in both houses of Congress. How do you break out... And you can't just give me an answer and say, well, I've got to go to all these calls. I mean, how do you break through the noise? Because there's so much of it and, and there are so many of you. And any given weekend you're in New Hampshire or in Iowa, there are going to be seven or eight other people in New Hampshire or Iowa. So how do you break through? How do you distinguish yourself? I think you just keep sharing your vision for the country and your experience and why you know you can win places like Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania because it's about electability. Can you actually win the red and purple places? Can you bring the people together? And is your vision strong enough? Is it inspiring enough that people want to support you and want to fight for you and want to go door to door for you? So although it sounds like a, a, a tired answer, it really is about every living room and you've got to go meet voters directly where they are. And I don't know the data and you can look it up, but I would argue the last couple of presidential candidates who are Democrats who won, or even our nominees, you had to look at where they were at this early stage. I, I think somebody looked up where Bill Clinton was at this stage. He wasn't uh, in the race. He, he, he had 1% in the polls and uh, had 30% name recognition in Iowa. So like, it takes time. It's not a fast thing. And with 20 candidates, it might actually take longer than you think. Because for each one of us to have a chance to be heard, it's going to take time. I mean, even the um, even the debates alone, I mean, if we get more than five minutes each on that stage, that'll be surprising. Mm -hmm. So you're really even not even going to have more than a few minutes to talk about what you're for and why you're running and what you're uh, views are for the country so it's gonna take time and I think for me it needs I need to be patient um, and know that it's gonna take time and hard work um, but I'm prepared for that and because I have a mission driven driven campaign and a purpose driven campaign it doesn't matter you know your poll numbers is are relevant today with what matters is where you are a year from now but is there a sense of urgency that begins to creep in as we get closer to that first debate, and as one of the reporters asked you earlier, that you have not qualified yet, basically. Well, I think that's created because of the DNC's framework that mm -hmm. they've put the candidates under. I don't think that's natural, and I don't think it's normal. I think it's just because of the rules that um, Do you our, disagree with those rules? our party has set. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't know that they're serving the public well, but... I don't know. Do they, I mean, it seems as though the DNC is trying to learn the lessons from the RNC in, in 2016 when it was just chaotic and there was no real right. structure to that primary. But they could be looked at as arbitrary, these these guidelines, these structures that, that the party Well, the two measurables they have are related to name recognition, so. Mm-hmm. Okay. But either way, I will overcome it. You look confident. Yeah.
I am. Thanks again for listening to Off Message. I'm Tim Alberta. If you like this episode, please send it to friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, and subscribe. It's free, and we'll be back before long with another exhilarating episode featuring an interview with another 2020 Democratic presidential candidate. A big thanks, as always, to our producer, Jenny Ament, and to our executive producer, Dave Shaw.